Welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Key HIV Studies Influencing My Practice Following CROI 2022, featuring Dr. Daniel Kuritskis and Dr. David Wall. Dr. Kuritskis is the Harriet Ryan Albee Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Wall is a professor of medicine in the School of Medicine and site leader of the Global Infectious Diseases Clinical Trials Unit at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In this episode, they discuss data presented at the conference, including on prevention strategies, long-acting therapies for treatment, second-line therapies, comorbidities, and cure. For the full online educational program, including downloadable slides, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what our expert faculty have to say about new data from CROI 2022. So let's get started with a discussion of some of the studies of HIV prevention. And the first of these is an update on HPTN 083. Uh, This, of course, was the study of long-acting cabotegravir, injectable cabotegravir for PrEP, uh, conducted in men who have sex with men and transgender women. We saw the uh, initial results of this study about a year and a half ago uh, at the International AIDS Conference in 2020, and then it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And uh, at the current conference, we heard uh, updated information from a longer uh, follow-up, specifically from an additional year of follow-up during which uh, participants were unblinded as to whether they were continuing to receive injectable which I guess they knew not just the participants were on, whether they were continuing to receive just injectable PAB or whether they were receiving oral FTC PDF. Previously, it had been reported that there were 13 incident infections. That means infections that occurred after the time that people enrolled in the study. There were 13 in the CAB arm and three times as many in the oral tenofovir FTC arm. And with one infection subsequently having been found really to have been present at at baseline. But now we saw the the longer-term follow-up, and this slide shows uh, those data. Here, uh, an additional 13 infections identified on CAB. Two of these uh, were newly identified during the blinded period, uh, both of whom had on-time injections. And then 11 uh, were during the unblinded uh, period, one with uh, on-time injections, three with delayed injections, and and seven with uh, more than six months after uh, they had last received cabotegravir. So there were a total of seven breakthrough infections after you uh, do the math here uh, in people who were receiving cabotegravir on time. And um, that uh, suggests that despite all of everybody's best efforts, uh, there were nevertheless uh, some people in uh, injectable therapy uh, just wasn't uh, working as well as you'd like it to. If we look at the actual results during the um, uh, unblinded uh, follow-up period, uh, injectable cabotegravir still comes out as uh, superior to uh, oral tenofovir FTC. And uh, you can see that the injectable therapy, first of all, met the non-inferiority margin and then uh, actually achieved superiority uh, so that people were roughly two-thirds less likely to become infected uh, if they were getting injectable cab than if they received uh, oral 
uh, Tanafi or FTC. Uh, and if you look at the uh, overall result, uh, again, there is still demonstrated a superiority, again, about the two-thirds lower risk in people receiving injectable uh, PrEP with long-acting uh, CAB compared to uh, oral uh, dosing of uh, Tenofovir or FTC. Well, one of the uh, ancillary studies that was done uh, as part of uh, OA3 was to look at the emergence of drug resistance, because it, clearly if people are continuing to receive cabotegravir despite having become infected, uh, there's the opportunity to, sele to select for uh, integrase inhibitor resistance. And this is a particular problem because it's been shown in PrEP studies and more specifically in studies of long-acting cabotegravir that because when people become infected, they end up being partially or mostly suppressed by the drugs that they're receiving, there's a delay in seroconversion. And this can lead to the failure of antibody antigen tests to detect infection. And that allows then for the opportunity for resistance to emerge. Uh, seven participants in uh, 083 uh, had received CAB after HIV infection, five of whom uh, had evidence then of uh, INSTE resistance. And two of them, there were no genotyping results uh, available. And so what um, Susan Eshelman and her group Hopkins did in the virology lab for the HPTN was to um, look back at serial samples from uh, these individuals using a sensitive uh, HIV RNA uh, qualitative diagnostic test to see in whom might they have detected uh, HIV infection sooner than uh, the fourth generation assays. And if they had detected their infection sooner, would they have detected them before resistance was established as determined by doing this single genome sequencing? So they had 21 samples from these seven individuals uh, and um, uh, the uh, lower limit of detection in the uh, Aptima assay is, is 30 copies, uh, and they then uh, did the uh, resistance analysis. And so what they found was that in six of the seven participants, they could find major mutations in samples, even when they had less than 500 copies per mil. Obviously, it's hard to do that uh, clinically because most uh, commercial labs won't uh, accept a sample for sequencing uh, at that low level of viremia. But they found that screening with the more sensitive HIV RNA assay would have detected infection before the emergence of INSTE resistance mutations in four of the six individuals for whom they had resistance data. The seventh person, they just couldn't get uh, resistance uh, information because their sequencing failed. And then the two others, although they already had some INSTE mutations, they would have accumulated more mutations uh, if diagnosed later. And so they might have been able to intervene at an earlier time. So the investigators conclude that use of a sensitive RNA assay for screening in the setting of LA-CAB for PrEP uh, could improve earlier detection of infection, uh, earlier initiation of a full ART regimen, not just single drug, and reduce the risk of developing insti resistance. And of course, because of its uh, high efficacy, long-acting cabotegravir PrEP should uh, be considered even in settings where HIV RNA screening is not readily available. And it's worth noting that in the U.S., with the FDA approval of uh, LA-CAB uh, for PrEP, uh, RNA screening uh, of participants uh, is uh, not a, a patients in this case uh, or recipients of long-acting PrEP uh, is uh, recommended. And the CDC is coming out with new guidance uh, that incorporates uh, RNA testing in addition to antibody testing because of these issues around 
uh, sensitivity of the antibody antigen tests. Well, another uh, study for PrEP, which was really just a um, phase two uh, trial, not an efficacy study, uh, was with uh, oral islatrovir. Uh, islatrovir is a, a nucleoside reverse transcriptase and translocation inhibitor, an RTTI. Uh, and this study, which uh, enrolled HIV seronegative individuals, uh, randomized them to three different arms, either placebo or one of two monthly doses of oral PrEP. Uh, this is a long-acting drug, even when given uh, orally. And, and the goal here was to look at uh, uh, safety and pharmacokinetics. Uh, you can see that there were roughly 100 people in both of the eslatrovir arms and about 50 in the, in the placebo arm. Uh, and if we go to uh, the overall results, there was a somewhat greater uh, increase in weight in the higher dose eslatrovir arm. And that was reflected by slightly uh, greater increases, uh, percent increases in uh, uh, peripheral and, and, and trunk fat, no real major changes in, in bone mineral density or in renal function. And overall, uh, there were no clinically meaningful differences uh, with respect to metabolic and renal parameters in these two dosing groups. However, uh, the big issue was that what they did find to everybody's great surprise was that there was uh, a significant lymphopenia uh, that developed in people uh, who were receiving eslatrovir that appeared to be dose-related. This was information re released uh, um, a month or two ago by a press release from Merck. And as a consequence, the eslatrovir PrEP program has been placed on hold uh, by the FDA uh, due to these uh, changes. So exactly where uh, this drug will be going, uh, whether this is just because of the high doses given for monthly oral PrEP, or whether this will have an impact on, on implantable PrEP where a lower steady release of, of drug is, uh, is achieved remains to be seen. And then the last of the um, uh, prevention studies uh, to discuss with you is the, uh, are the results of the Imbocoto uh, vaccine study. This study used the so-called uh, mosaic uh, AT26 uh, vaccine. So this is a, uh, an AD26 recombinant, the same platform as has been used for AD26 COVID vaccine. But here the insert is a mixture of GAG, pollen, and antigens from uh, different uh, clades. The um, participants who were randomized to the vaccine arm uh, were primed with the adenoviral uh, vector vaccine and then boosted with a clade C uh, envelope, a clade C GP140 uh, envelope. This study was conducted in uh, women who were uh, HIV negative for HIV-1 and 2, but at high risk for HIV infection due to uh, the frequency of uh, unprotected sex, and um, where they were uh, randomized equally between the vaccine and, uh, and placebo, and then followed for the occurrence of uh, HIV infection during months 7 through 24. That's because there was six-month lead-in during the vaccination phase, and then of the week 24 was the the primary analysis. What the study showed, unfortunately, was that the vaccine really offered uh, no significant protection. Uh, there was about 25% vaccine efficacy, but the confidence limits uh, cross zero, uh, and therefore the vaccine cannot be said to have had any statistically significant protection. Uh, as a result, the follow-up was uh, terminated uh, after uh, week 24 uh, and is not continuing on as, as originally planned. Uh, there were no uh, safety concerns regarding the vaccine, and in particular, uh, in this study, uh, there was no uh, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia observed, 
as has been seen with the COVID vaccine. Uh, but of course, that's in a much larger group because the incidence in, of uh, TTS in the COVID vaccinated population is uh, on the order of uh, 10 or 20 uh, per million. And, and so you wouldn't expect necessarily to have detected it in this uh, study of just uh, uh, 2,400 people. So uh, take-home points for prevention, a long-acting CAB, uh, additional infections were identified in the study during the additional year of follow-up since unblinding, but uh, nevertheless, a long-acting CAB remained superior to FBC TDF at preventing HIV infection. And um, based on the results of uh, very sensitive resistance testing, a sensitive HIV RNA assay uh, that would have detected infection earlier than the um, fourth generation tests uh, would have picked up infection before the opportunity to accumulate mutations uh, and may have preserved uh, integrase inhibitors as useful therapy for these uh, individuals. With regard to Islatrovir, um, there were no uh, clinically meaningful differences uh, compared to placebo as far as metabolic or renal parameters are concerned, but the studies are now on hold because of lymphopenia. And then uh, with regard to the vaccine, the heterologous HIV vaccine regimen consisting of the ad 26 vector expressing the mosaic gag polym antigens and an alum uh, adjuvanted plate C envelope was found to be ineffective as compared to placebo. So let me hand this off now to my colleague, uh, Dr. David Wall, who will take us through long-acting therapies. Perfect. Thank you, Dan. And so I am going to talk about therapeutics, and we'll start with some newer drugs and then maybe talk a little bit more about what we've got available. So lenacapravir certainly is a molecule that we've heard about before. There's a capsid inhibitor. And as Dan pointed out, some of the data we're seeing at CROI was presented or early looks at the International AIDS Conference, and that's the case for lenacapravir. I'm going to go over two studies. One is Calibrate, which looks at lenacapravir in treatment-naive patients. The design is a little bit complicated. Note this is a phase two study, so the sample size is pretty small, about 50 people per arm. And really, the, the thing to look at here is the maintenance phase. And early on, we saw data from week 28. There was this induction, and then if you were successful with induction, we went on to maintenance. And what we're looking at is lenacapavir sub-Q every six months. I always point out that's not a misprint. It's every six months taken with TAF alone, oral TAF versus lenacapavir sub-Q every six months with BIC taken every day by mouth. And the comparators are lenacapavir from the very beginning, orally with TAF and FTC, versus plain old BF-TAF as you know, the ultimate comparator, if you will. So we're going to go over the data for this week 54 time point. So this is people who are now stably on one of those four regimens. And what we see just by the height of these bars is that basically these things are all doing really well, that every regimen has performed nicely when we talk about the proportion of people who are less than 50. We even look at the proportion of people who are above 50. I think the only thing to point out here is that if you're on BIC, you did even better, if you will. And if you look at the proportion of people who are over 50, it's a zero when you look at the intent to treat. And even when you look at the FDA snapshot, those who are on BIC, um, had zeros for a proportion that were less than 50. But the others, again, very small numbers, sample size differences. You know, it's hard to put much into it with only 52 people per arm. But all of these strategies seem to work really well. Resistance, though, can occur with lenacapavir. And we saw this earlier on. So one patient who was on lenacapavir sub-Q with TAF-FTC developed failure with resistance. And this was before switching to BIC. They were randomized to the BIC switch arm, but this was before this happened at week 10. 
And we see somebody else who is not on an integrase, again, with half FTC on lenacaprovir PO also developing resistance to the lenacaprovir. So it does happen. We know that. And there is some barrier to resistance or some PK issue that lets this occur. We also saw last time some really nice data about safety and about injection site reactions. This seems to be a little bit different injection site reaction than what we'll talk about with cabotegravir and ropivirine. Nodules do form. Some of the data we saw at week 24 showed that some of these stayed for a while, but very rare to get discontinuation, or rare, let's just say, to get discontinuation of therapy because of an injection site reaction, but something we're paying attention to. Capella is a companion study looking at the, uh, the same drug, lenacapavir, in people with multi-drug resistant HIV. Again, early phase study, limited number of people. This is not huge numbers. We're talking basically about 36 people who were randomized to functional monotherapy with lenacapavir or just continuing their failing regimen. These are people who have significant amounts of previous experience and, and resistance to their earlier regimens. And then after two weeks, going on to maintenance therapy such that everyone ends up after induction on sub-Q lenacapavir every six months plus their optimized background regimen. There was a non-randomized control group of people who you know, had a decline between, during screening in their viral load just to add on more data from that group. But we're going to go over the first group, the 36 people who basically ended up on sub-Q lenacapavir in addition to optimized background therapy. And here we're just looking at that group. This is not a comparison between arms. This is everyone looking at less than 50 in blue or less than 200 in the orangish color. And pretty good numbers. Again, this is a pretty hard to treat group. So the proportion of patients getting to these milestones with virologic suppression, pretty good at week 26 and sustained to week 52, which is really great. So that's very, very exciting. Interestingly enough, when we saw this again, really unfazed from week uh, 26 to week 52 is the graphic on the right. Even when you look at the fully active agents predicted to be in the background therapy, whether it was zero, one, or two or more, we see that there was really good results here. Specifically, look at the people who have only one fully active agent available in their optimized background regimen. Over 75% of those people were able to get a viral load less than 50. 67% of those, again, small numbers, four out of six, who had none. So there is activity here that we're seeing in addition to whatever the optimized background therapy is providing of lenacapravir in these highly treatment experienced patients, but that's pretty impressive. So overall, again, like we saw before, there is resistance that can occur. It happened in four patients. Those were all reported back before week 26 at the previous uh, conference. Uh, no new resistance uh, and failure was seen, so that's good, but we did see that before and that was pretty well characterized immunological markers were, were as expected and were pretty um, positive. And again, these nodules, grade one or so, um, they happen. Again, this is a small sample size, so it's very hard to make much of this, but we have to see more about this. The big thing, of course, as well, is just like the Islatrovir story, this has been a kind of dark um, month or so for uh, new prevention and treatment in that we're um, having some clinical holds due to issues. In this case, it's not white blood cell count like it was with eslatrovir, but borosilylate vials, the glass vials that this was being, lenacapravir was being formulated in. There's some issues with that and maybe some particles getting into the actual drug. So I think we have to find out a little bit more about the implications of that. Um, but this seems to be a problem that hopefully could be solved and doesn't seem something inherent to the lenacapravir, which may be very different, of course, than what we're dealing with eslatrovir. All right, let's move to something a little different. Now we're going to talk about 
another long-acting therapy, but one that's available to us now. And this is cabotegravir and ropivirine. So these are the week 152 results from Atlas 2M. Remember, Atlas 2M has been around for a while. It was published back by Overton and Lancet uh, back in 2020 and in 2021, presented as well. Here are updated data. You'll remember that this is comparing long-acting cab and ropivirine every four weeks versus every eight weeks. And in this study, it's a little bit of a mixture of people coming into the study originally. 40% were on cabropivirine in an earlier trial, the ATLAS trial, but 60% were either in the placebo arm of, or not getting long-acting cab, I should say, or were just coming in from outside of the study completely. So a lot of these people came in had already been on cabropivirine every four weeks and either switched to eight weeks or stayed on every four weeks. So that's an important thing to think about as we move forward. So the primary endpoint, of course, proportion greater than or equal to 50 at week 48. And now we're looking at longer term data. So here we see it's a lot of, lot of bars really concentrate on the blue and the reddish orange bar because that's the intent to treat looking at every eight weeks in blue and every four weeks in the orange. And we see nice again, 86% to 87.4%, really nice rates of virologic suppression. When you look at the virologic non-response, again, you can see that the bars are pretty low, but there are differences. 1% for every four weeks versus, and it really should be less than 1%. If you do the math, it's more like 0.7% versus 2.7% in the every eight weeks. And what we did see here is that already there were some failures with resistant confirmed virologic failure, almost a dozen of them in this trial. And we did see that there were two additional participants who both happened to be in the Q eight-week arm from the last time that we looked at this between week 96 and week 152. You can see some of the information about these two failures there. And as we've seen before, sometimes people who do have confirmed virologic failure, in fact, most of them, either have resistance that's detected at failure to the ropivirine, to NNRTIs, or unfortunately, even to integrase inhibitors. And so that's definitely concerning. You can see there in the bottom, 13 participants had confirmed virologic failure. Eight week, it's 11. Uh, Q4 week, it's only two. That's concerning. None of these confirmed virologic failures are in people who were late. So this is not an issue of adherence, if you will, to the long-acting injectables. As far as injection site reaction, nothing new here, a lot of data, but it's basically reiterating what we saw before. Generally well-tolerated. Here, we're not seeing so much nodules as what we see is an induration that goes away after a few days. And many of us now have more experience with this and have seen this for ourselves. Very rare in this case for people to withdraw. These are large numbers, very few people withdraw because of this. And we've seen really novelly, the satisfaction scores in this study have been through the roof. People definitely like getting injections and they certainly like getting it every eight week versus every four week. So take home messages, just putting these three different trials together. In treatment-naive people, sub-Q and a capivir every six months combined with TAF or BIC given orally was effective at maintaining virologic suppression through a year. In heavily treatment experience, we also saw that sub-Q and a capivir in the same six-month schedule with optimized background therapy was effective, including in people who had very limited activity of their optimized background regimen. Long-acting cabropivirine given every eight weeks, it looks pretty good for the majority it just takes a rare event, which is failure with resistance, and makes it slightly less rare. That may be a trade-off that we just have to think about and talk about through shared decision-making with our patients. 
regarding maybe some of the issues with every eight week versus every four week. In my practice, I'll tell you, a lot of people will take that chance given if they see these data, if I um, try to summarize what we're seeing here, I think they would take the chance due to the, the flexibility and the convenience of every eight week. So let's move on to second line therapies, keeping with the therapeutics theme. So the studies I'm going to talk about now are all done in sub-Saharan Africa. So this is Descend. This is a study that was done in mostly the Lusaka area of Zambia. And remember, in other parts of the world, there's not as many options and people have to think strategically about the use of antiretrovirals, especially some that people are using that we don't use here. So NNRTIs are still used in many parts of the world. And here, the idea was to take folks who are on NNRTI with Efavirenz or Nivirapine along with TDF-FTC and think about what would be the next regimen. So there's two basic stratifications here in the study, so two basic strata. One is people who had a viral load that was less than 1,000 when they entered the study. And then there's the group that I think many of us think about in switching, which is those who are having virologic failure. So on that regimen, that low barrier to resistance regimen, they had a viral load of 1,000 or more. So in RMA, the less than 1,000 viral load, what we're talking about, about 80% of those people had a viral load less than 50, but there was about 20% that were between 50 so, and 1,000, so low-level viremia. But for the other arm, these are people clearly who have viremia in arm B. And they were randomized based upon which strata they were in to either in the arm A, just a plain old switch. Let's get you out of the NNRTI and let's get you on dolutegravir either with TDF or with TAF and the companion FTC or 3PC. For the group that was viremic, it was a little bit like that. So same sort of you know, dichotomy between dolutegravir with TDF versus TAF or protease inhibitor therapy, boosted protease with either lopinavir or adazanavir, and here using AZT3PC. Again, some of these drugs are still being used. There are stockpiles of them in other parts of the world. And so does it make sense to utilize what you have? So a little complicated. Keep this in your mind as we go through. But the key thing is there's two groups here, low-level viremia or aviremic versus the viremic. And what do we see? So when we look at RMA, the people who are, again, aviremic or very low-level viremia, looking at an intent to treat, so very strictly, or looking at the FDA per protocol analysis, majority of people were able to keep a viral load or achieve a viral load less than 50. And it didn't seem to make a difference whether or not you're on TAF versus TDF along with your dolutegravir. So there wasn't much of a difference there that you can see. And I like the forest plot because it's showing us here you know, this non-inferiority result versus the, the superiority margin. When we start looking at arm B, that's the people who were viremic. We have more arms of the study. And you can see this little stepwise, uh, you know, right there on the graphic on the left, where we go from dolutegravir TAF, FTC, dolutegravir TDF, FTC, and then the boosted PIs with AZT, 3PC. And there's less and less proportion of people in those arms who are having virologic suppression at less than 50 copies in both ways that we can look at this. And again, the forest plot helps us here in thinking about how this is looking. Now, remember, this forest plot is looking at getting a viral load less than 1,000. If you look at a forest plot looking at getting less than 50, there was an advantage of TAF over um, TDF in people who are on dolutegravir. But if we're just looking at the primary outcome, which is less than 1,000, this is what you get. And there's some parity between TDF, which is much more ubiquitous, of course, than TAP in most of the world. But the big thing here is you can switch. There's no bad thing that happens to people who are switching from an NNRTI over to the integrase, even if you keep the TDF on board. And I think that's a really key point here. And you will actually do worse if you go to AZT plus a boosted PI.
Weak data were also presented, and some of this is very congruent with what we've seen before, and some of it is a little bit head-scratchy. So when you look at the people in RMA, less than 1,000 viral load who are switching, so this is not like my virus is getting you know, massively under more control. As would be expected, TDF was associated with less weight gain than people who were not on TDF, in this case, TAF. And for women, again, we're seeing more weight gain in the viremic cohort. All the other graphs are for the viremic cohort where women who um, got TAF instead of TDF certainly had uh, greater weight gain. But then we start to see in these other graphics things that I don't completely understand, which is weight gain that's proportional with people on dietary regardless of TAF versus TDF, and that is especially seen in men. So I'm not so sure what this means, and we'll have to keep track of this. Another study that came from Sub-Saharan Africa, this study was done in Kenya, Uganda, and Zambia, a number of different sites across those three countries. And this is looking here at, at people who are living with HIV. Again, now we're looking at TDF, 3TC, or FTC, and an NNRTI with treatment failure. And the, there's two randomizations at the same time. One is randomizing people to dalutegravir or darunavir or tonavir, and then secondarily to either get TDF, 3TC, or AZT, 3TC. So looking at the, the different kind of permutations of dalutegravir versus the boosted PI with TDF versus AZT. Again, non-inferiority study, pretty good power, 230 people or so per arm. And the primary outcome at week 48 was that dalutegravir was non-inferior to darunavir or tonavir, and TDF, 3TC, was non-inferior to AZT, 3TC. We get further data here now at week 96, which is important. And again, no big difference between dalutegravir and darunavir or tonavir as far as efficacy, certainly advantages of dalutegravir over a boosted PI in general, as we would all appreciate. And here you can see as well, when we start looking at TDF versus AZT, looking across the different rows, viral load less than 1,000, 92.7% versus 86.6%, which was statistically significant, but not different when we start looking statistically, numerically, but not statistically at less than 50. So we'll go into a little bit more detail here because I think it's important. Nice graphic here by Jessica and team looking at the subgroup analyses, nicely seeing that the forest plot shows these point estimates almost at zero based upon these roots here, dalutegravir, darunavir, and whether we're tenofovir or AZT. And then when we start talking about predicted active drugs of these different NRTIs on top of this, we can see again a little bit of a diminution of effect when you start getting more resistance and less active drugs. This becomes a little bit more operative and clear when we look at the people who actually had K65R, whether it was present or absent. So not too surprising, TDF did generally better, pointed towards better in people who didn't have a K65R present. And it was only when the K65R was present, which was not incredibly rare here, where you start to see equity between TDF and AZT as far as the differences here in their biologic suppression activity. So that may explain some of the lack of difference that a bunch of people came in and already had K65R. Without the K65R present, we did see people do better on TDF versus AZT. And this is really just going down the list, a similar sort of story when you start looking at this broken down various ways. So when we talk about the key take-home points for second-line therapies, just putting this all together in the send, which I think helps us understand a little bit because we get into these conundrums too about people on TDF, FTC, and when we're switching them, whether or not we should switch them and how much we have to be worried about one agent not having to carry the load or not. So I think that there's some relevance here for us, but in people who are failing 
an NNRTI-based regimen with TDF3TC. The Vicent trial showed us that TDF3TC plus the integrase was non-inferior to TAF-FTC and the integrase. Both dietegrial reg regimens were superior, though, to the boosted PI with AZT. Weight gain increased among women specifically who are not on TDF, who are on TAF-FTC. And then in the Nadia trial, people who are on NNRTI plus TDF plus 3TC or FTC, Dalutegravir plus two nukes was non-inferior, as we just pointed out, to the boosted PI plus two nukes. TDF was superior to AZT. And I keep putting in this little plug, but for the less than 50, TAF looked a little bit better than, than TDF. So I'm going to turn it back over to Dr. Pritzkis, who's going to go over comorbidities and cure. Well, thanks, David. Uh, and thanks for that uh, great overview of uh, long-acting and regular uh, uh, treatment. So let's continue on now with the final topics for uh, today's review. And we'll start by talking about whoops, the study for um, neurological complications of uh, HIV. This is the ACTG A5324 study, also known as the InMind study. Uh, this is a study that uh, was uh, many years in, uh, uh, in design and then finally uh, enrolled, and now it's great to see it coming to uh, fruition. Uh, so this study was based on the proposition that some drugs might be able to penetrate the central nervous system better than others, and that individuals who were experiencing cognitive impairment, despite being on suppressive antiretroviral therapy, might benefit from the addition of uh, one or more of these agents to their um, suppressive regimen. Uh, and so people uh, were randomized to either, everybody stayed on their regimen, and they were randomized to either uh, get a placebo uh, get uh, dolutegravir with Maraviroc placebo, or get both dolutegravir uh, and Maraviroc, and then were followed uh, over time to see how their uh, performance on neuropsych tests uh, had changed, with the primary outcome being a, a normalized uh, Z-score. This is looking at the deviation from the, uh, the median, uh, much the same way as Z-scores are used uh, uh, in uh, assessing uh, bone mineral density. Uh, and, and you can see there the, the various measures that, uh, that were used. So uh, the study, unfortunately, found that there really was no difference. The, the good news is that everybody's scores improved over time, but there was no difference between the people who uh, stayed on just their uh, existing regimen, those who added only dolutegravir, or those who added both dolutegravir and Maraviroc uh, to their regimen. They also showed a, a decrease in uh, their uh, depression scores, uh, and uh, there, was a, there were improvements in their uh, patient health questionnaire uh, scores, but not between the uh, treatment arms. There were no effects seen based on uh, sex, race, uh, uh, study site, uh, whether people were on efavirenz or not, uh, and what their baseline level of uh, performance was. Uh, and so the results really uh, don't support the empiric intensification of a, a um, suppressive ARG regimen in order to improve uh, cognitive uh, impairment. Uh, perhaps one of the most exciting studies uh, uh, to be presented at the uh, meeting was this uh, case report from patient treated through uh, IMPACT uh, P1107. And this was a really uh, very interesting study. So as you know, uh, there have been two people to date who reported to uh, have been cured of HIV. Uh, one was, of course, uh, Timothy Ray Brown, who uh, had received a bone marrow transplant for leukemia from a donor who was uh, homozygous for the CCR5 deletion uh, and then uh, lived for um, 
uh, 12 years uh, until unfortunately dying of a relapse of, uh, of his leukemia just a, a year or two ago. Uh, and more recently, uh, we heard from Ravi Gupta in London, the uh, report of a second person, this one treated for Hodgkin lymphoma, again, with a donor who had uh, uh, deleted, uh, was homozygous for the CCR5 deletion. But those approaches required identifying uh, such donors, and the impact study was designed to be able to uh, use cells that were uh, donors who were identified through a um, cord blood bank uh, and um, to know who had cells that carried this deletion and then be able to r rapidly match uh, for HLA uh, haplotype when a suitable uh, recipient uh, came along. And um, the study uh, ultimately enrolled just a couple of people, and this is the one person uh, who had a, uh, a success. This was a 59-year-old woman um, said to be of mixed race, but we don't know exactly which uh, background, was diagnosed with HIV uh, in 2013 and then with AML in 2017 and received a, a mixed uh, donor transplant where she received cells from this cord blood unit as well as um, cell PBMCs from a, a relative. Um, this was a partially matched uh, donor. Um, it was only five out of eight uh, HLA alleles were matched compared to the full matches in the previous cases. Uh, had pretty intensive induction therapy, but then very rapidly uh, uh, engrafted and was 100% uh, chimeric, as they say, meaning all of her uh, circulating blood cells were from the donor, whereas the rest of her cells, of course, were her own. By day 100, she was 100% chimeric uh, and had a durable remission of her, uh, her AML. And at 37 months post-transplant, decided to stop uh, antiretroviral therapy. So this slide shows uh, the results of uh, several different approaches to detecting uh, HIV. Uh, you can see how um, the, here the blue circles, the HIV DNA was uh, uh, readily detectable pre-transplant and then through the induction uh, and in the immediate peri-transplant period uh, became undetectable, these open circles, uh, as did other measures of um, uh, HIV, including QVOA, uh, as well as uh, plasma HIV RNA, uh, which was uh, you know in this very low detectable but not quantifiable range, and then these uh, assays all remained uh, undetectable except for one uh, brief uh, blip in uh, two LTR circles uh, uh, in the uh, in weeks immediately uh, following uh, transplantation. The cells that uh, are now circulating in this uh, patient are uh, were shown to be unable to support replication of uh, HIV. Curiously unable to support either R5 or X4 viruses. Frankly, that makes no sense to me because they should be infectable by X4 virus, but you'd expect them to be resistant to CCR5 using uh, virus. And uh, they were, of course, uh, resistant to uh, her, her original uh, isolate. Also, very interestingly, at a year following the transplant, a patient had uh, lost her HIV-specific antibody responses, uh, further evidence that there was no persisting HIV antigen to uh, stimulate neo-antibody uh, responses since most of her own uh, B cells would have been eliminated uh, during uh, the transplant. So the key take-home points from uh, this final section uh, on comorbidities and cure are that for people with HIV who have cognitive impairment, heart intensification with dolutegravir and marafiroc uh, did not improve cognition 
uh, as compared to a placebo. Although, as you saw, everybody actually got somewhat better uh, over time, uh, which is uh, intriguing. And then um, we have this really fascinating result of this uh, combined uh, cord blood and peripheral blood mononuclear cell uh, haploidentical transplant uh, that led to loss of uh, uh, HIV-specific antibody responses, inability to detect virus, and the absence of any virologic relapse uh, now uh, more than a year, and um, may represent uh, the third uh, documented cure of uh, HIV. And with that, uh, we have some time to uh, turn to our question and answer uh, period. And uh, there are a number of uh, questions that have been coming in. So, uh, David, do you want to start? Yeah, I can. I'll start it off. So, this is great. So, harking back to your, you know, the prevention part, there's been a lot of questions about what's the right testing to use in people who are going to get cabotegravir for PrEP. And, and I believe the updated guidelines say we should be using a viral load test within a week of starting people on CAB long-acting. Um, what's your thoughts about diagnostic testing and, and using, a, you know, not an, you know, using a PCR versus not using the P24? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think the, the, the two big issues are, one, it's clear that some people got missed in the screening uh, and were already infected when they right. started. Have. And we've seen that also with oral tenofovir FTC. And so we would catch more people, uh, but whether the numbers of people who might be detected by that approach uh, is worth the extra money involved and, and potentially the extra delay involved in doing the RNA testing is, um, is the big question. Uh, and then for monitoring, um, the issue becomes, uh, will this be covered? Because people are by definition not infected with HIV, and uh, they may or may not have their uh, testing covered. We've been fortunate so far that uh, antibody testing is covered as a STI screening and, and of course, the cost of drug, but whether payers will pony up for the RNA test, hopefully, if now that it's officially recommended, uh, they'll go along. Right. And the same thing for monitoring on LA cab. Yeah. Because the guidelines are saying you can do a P24, but then if it's negative, get a viral load. And I think some of us are just thinking, maybe we should get a viral load. A local doc told me very helpfully that he worked out a deal with commercial lab to just do a quantitative, not a qualitative, for $40. So there may be some deals out there that may help reduce some of the cost. But I think a lot of folks are going to be scratching their head about this and probably doing a viral load instead of the P24. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, here's a question for you, David. Um, so. Um... In Peru and in other parts of Latin America, with um, you know the disruptions caused by COVID nineteen, there's been a fall off in adherence that, that they've noted, and uh, consequently increases in virologic failures. Um, and, and the question is, um, given all these challenges, um, where you don't have as many resources as may be available in, in uh, uh, countries like the United States, uh, should they be using uh, dolutegravir or other integrase inhibitors as first line, or, or is it better to stick to uh, TLE or uh, you know tenofovir FTC efavirenz and save the instes for uh, treatment failures? Yeah, it's a hard one. I think you know the benefits that we're seeing across the board in the higher barrier to resistance of, of the integrase inhibitors lead me to think for the same reasons we rely on them here. Dan, I don't know when the last time you actually ordered a resistance genotype on a patient failing here in the United States. I mean, this is part of our order set. I hardly do it anymore. 
So it obviates the issue that we're talking about. You don't have viral load, you don't have resistance testing available. But when we start using things like dolutegravir and bictegravir early on, we don't need to do resistance testing. So I think that this makes it more bulletproof. When it is available, I think it's beneficial. And we also see that when people fail these drugs, they oftentimes do not fail with resistance to that anchor, just like we saw with boosted PIs. So my vote would be if you've got the dolutegravir, use it and don't preserve it for later on because then you're asking, it's like sliding scale insulin. You're, you're asking it you know, to reach a level before you apply the therapeutic. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, and uh, you know, that's why the WHO now recommends TLD as the uh, regimen of choice for first-line therapy uh, across the globe uh, with a specific uh, view towards uh, lower and middle-income countries. So um, this is a kind of a practical question too. And, and, and David Hardy asked an important one about lenacapavir's resistance and you know, it's, it's barrier to resistance. I think, you know, is this an inherent molecular issue? Is this a PK issue? You might have some insights about that. Is there something structurally inherent about this drug that barrier to resistance? I know it's, it involves both, but where do you think this fits in the spectrum? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I, clearly there are some very specific mutations that uh, prevent binding of the drug. And so but that, that's not very different from what we see with NNRTIs or, or with the integrase inhibitors uh, and the PIs. So uh, I think it is going to be uh, an issue that we'll have to watch and, and see as lar in larger numbers of uh, participants as the bigger phase three studies get done. How many people fail? Because if you don't fail, you're not going to get resistant. That's the key thing, right? So if this is a highly successful regimen, then we won't have to worry so much. Uh, and then secondly, among those who do fail, uh, how frequently do we see uh, resistance? And is it more than you might have expected uh, with other regimens? Remembering that if you ended up using this as a first-line regimen, should it get approval for that indication, you'd have all the other drugs available, whether it's a integrase inhibitor, a boosted PI, a non-new uh, to use in subsequent regimens. And now, given what we've seen with Nadia and others, we know we don't have to worry so much about the impact of nuke resistance on second-line uh, regimens that include uh, dolutegravir or a boosted PI. Right. It's not like burning an integrase class. Yeah, you definitely keep options open. So it's not, it's not miserable that you get this resistance. Right. I think that's a really important point. Thank you very much to Dr. Kuritskis and Dr. Wall, and thank you to our listeners for joining in. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you and have a great day.